times of crisis throughout history, God has raised saints to uphold the church. And in the time of Soviet communism and the culture of death, God raised up John Paul II. And that Pope brought love to a world that was quickly losing sight of what love is. And this Friday is the feast of Pope St. John Paul II. And so Bishop Caggiano is going to share his thoughts on the great saint and how this giant of the 20th century is still as relevant and important as ever. So keep your radio right here at 13.50 a.m. or stay dialed in on your phone with the Veritas mobile app. As you know, the app um, allows you to listen to the live broadcast or you can grab podcasts of episodes you missed. You can go to the Apple App Store, the Google Play Store, or veritascatholic.com to download the Veritas Catholic Network mobile app today. Let Me Be Frank is brought to you by a grant from Foundations in Faith. It is that time of year again, and Foundations in Faith is accepting applications for Youth in Action grants. The program will fund three diocesan initiatives that are by youth and for youth for up to $5,000. To be eligible, applicants must be members of a Catholic high school, a parish high school age youth group, or a Catholic young adult group. Applications must also emphasize evangelization, collaboration, or justice and equity for historically underserved populations in their proposed programs. Find out more on the Foundations in Faith website. Applications are now live on that website and they will close on November 19th at midnight. To learn more or to apply, visit foundationsinfaith.org and click on Youth in Action Grants at the top of the page. Foundations in Faith embraces innovative approaches to funding pastoral care programs in the Diocese of Bridgeport, from seminarians to retired priests, from baptism to last rites, from suburbs to inner cities, the reach is broad and the impact is meaningful. All right, welcome back to Let Me Be Frank. This I'm Steve Lee, and it is my great pleasure as always to introduce Bishop Frank Caggiano. Steve, good morning to you, my friend. Excellency, so nice to talk to you. Um, I'm really yeah. excited about today's topic Thank because um, this Friday, of course, is October 22nd, mm -hmm. which is the feast mm -hmm. of St. John Paul the Great. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which is the anniversary of his papal inauguration, right? Aha. Uh -huh. Okay, so that's uh, why in it's 1978. This day. Okay. Yeah, it's not the it, it's yeah it's unusual in so much as oftentimes saints are remembered on the days of their deaths, but um, for for John Paul, it's the anniversary of becoming the successor of Peter, two, the two hundred and sixty fourth successor of Peter. Oh my word! Right, which is an amazing <laughs> thing. Yeah. yeah, he died on April second, right? Yes. So, um, so, so that's the, the kind of like the uniqueness there. But yes, and we're gonna spend the entire hour talking about this. Remarkable man of faith, a tremendous leader of the church, and still an inspiration um, to to many, particularly young adults, yeah. who were raised under his pontificate in a time when he was just such a towering figure on the world stage. Right? I mean, I, exactly. I mean, he. I was five when he was elected, and he sat in that chair of Peter until I was thirty-two. So. 
when I think of him, I, I love him like he was one of my grandfathers. Right, yeah. And of course, and as we have a chance maybe later on to talk a little bit about his, his personal life, um, the image that comes to mind is Isaiah when he speaks of a man acquainted with suffering, which yes. is obviously in, in reference to the Lord, and yet John Paul's entire religious psyche and was very much um, molded by the sufferings of his life, yeah. which 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 brought him to holiness rather than to bitterness, right? And we've met people who have made both choices, right? Yes. Either choice. Right. Right. But, I mean, to consider, he was 27 years the Pope, which is a tremendously long time. <laughs> he followed, remember, John Paul I, who we just received word is going to be beatified. Right. A miracle attributed to JP1. Um, my mother used to call him the smiling Pope, the laughing Pope, John Paul I. Yes. <laughs> uh, uh, right. And he, li he lived only a month. And he raised many expectations of, um, of a, a much more, um, for lack of a better way of putting it, uh, accessible papacy. Because Paul VI was a great scholar, he was a diplomat, but he, wasn't, he didn't come across warm and fuzzy. Let's put it that way, right? <laughs> okay. Like John XXIII, who everybody just wanted to hug. Right? <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. It was like a big teddy bear, and I mean big, big teddy bear, right? John the Twenty Third, who's also a saint. But that's another story. We could talk about John. We could talk about John the Twenty Third too in a podcast. Yeah, there's some great stories about. There are some great stories about John the Twenty Third. Anyway, so so then he comes into this moment where we're transitioning, and in many ways, I'm not sure he would have been at the head of the list of those who were immediately going to be papabili, those who could have been elected Pope. But that's irrelevant to God because God's will be done. So obviously it was foreordained. Right. Right? This was God's will. In fact, it's interesting. There is a story that is related by one of the Polish cardinals that John Paul visited Padre Pio I forget if he was either a bishop or a priest. And he visited Padre Pio, had his confession heard by Pio, and Pio said to him, one day, he said, you will rise to the highest post in the church. Wow. And John Paul, when he was named a cardinal, believed that was the fulfillment of the, I'll call it the prophecy of Padre Pio. But in fact, there was more to come as he was elected the Pope of the Church. Yeah, right? wow, yeah. Now, other things to remember, just this is broad strokes, okay? Mm -hmm. We remember that when, when John Paul was elected, communism was still very much uh, intact in Eastern Europe. Germany was divided, Poland was under communist rule since the end of the Second World War. Another major influence, and it is indisputable historically that John Paul was a key factor in the collapse of communism in Eastern Europe and eventually the collapse of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. Hmm. Precisely because he was a brilliant strategist. Yes. 
and did not confront communism directly, but united his own people around Christ. Everything else fell into place. Right? Yeah. He was the first non-Italian to, uh, to sit on the throne of Peter in almost 460, 70 years. Right? And we have had non-Italian since. Yes. Right? And remember, he... Remember the assassination attempt? Yes. Right? How old were you? My goodness, I'm not going to ask. I'll be depressed <laughs> if you tell me. <laughs> right? I was but eight. it was... Oh, God, mercy. Thank God I'm sitting. Anyway. <laughs> so it was the 13th of May... 1981. Yeah. Remember, he was in the square, and Ali Agga was uh, a marksman, part of a fascist group that called themselves the Grey Wolves, who he himself was Turkish, and shot him at close range. Yeah. And nearly, he nearly died. You know, there are reports that he lost three-quarters of all his blood. And just miraculously, and it was a miracle, miraculously, he missed um, major arteries that would have killed him instantly. Right. And I will never forget that day. I will never forget the image, never, for my entire life. How you could see the blood staining his white cassock as they drove him directly into the Vatican from there to Gemelli's Hospital. He was a five-hour surgery um, to allow uh, the lower portion of his abdomen and colon and small intestines that were all perforated, right, to gradually heal. Wow. And the story is that as he lay in the square and he was losing consciousness, he realized that there was no image of Our Lady in the square and so when he recovered one of the first things he did was to place a beautiful mosaic of Our Lady that is now visible when you go to the square it's lit at night and it was where he was looking and he said over and over again that he knew Our Lady was present to him uh, he knew Our Lady's maternal love was protecting him yes. and he ascribes Our Lady's intercession to his survival which subsequently later, has been associated with one of the secrets of Fatima, right? Huh. Yeah. It's remarkable. But what I did not know, or maybe I did know once and have forgotten over time, is that there were other attempts on his life, right? Huh. For example, right, there was a second attempt in May of the following year. Um... It would have been almost the anniversary of the first time they tried to kill him. And it, there was a priest, believe it or not, a priest, who was associated, very traditional, associated with the uh, Lefebvreist Society mm -hmm. of Pius X, mm -hmm. who, on the trip to Fatima, was attempting to detonate a bomb, and of course it would have killed him and would have killed the Pope. And foolishly, stupidly, but justly, um, malfunctioned and uh, alerted the police right, that something was very much wrong, and they arrested him before he ever had the opportunity to come near the Pope. Wow. 
Wow. And then there was the third attempt, right, during his trip to the Philippines, the World Youth Day, right? A suicide bomber, where I was also going to detonate a bomb, right? And, um, you know, thanks be to God, he didn't. So this man was marked. And the other thing that's interesting, you know, there's a lot of um, rumor and speculation about whether or not the first attempt on John Paul's life was orchestrated by the old Soviet Union, the old KGB. And, you know, I'm not sure that was ever proven, but I mean, from a layman's point of view, it would be somewhat logical because he certainly was a threat. They had intuited he was a threat. And as it turns out, he was not a threat directly to them. He was being authentically the successor of Peter. <laughs> he was right. preaching the gospel. Yes. <laughs> Right? His end. Um, so who knows if that's the case or not. This seems to be a general consensus that they were involved. Yeah. Aren't they? Those, these are just extraordinary events. But there's a whole line of extraordinary events that we're going to do. I mean, it's just astounding what happened in this man's life, both as a young man, as a priest, as a bishop, and as the successor of Peter. Yes. Right? Yep. Yep. Right? And, and but let me ask you a question. Oh, I'm sorry, Steve. No, Please. no, go ahead. Go ahead, Excellency. No, no, no. I just I was going to ask you, what is your most endearing recollection of John Paul? Gosh, I I, I was too young to um, know about his Poland trip uh, shortly after he was elected. When I look, when I read accounts of his life, and Peggy Noonan has a book where she put it so, you know she just painted the picture so well about that but for me there's no there's no one thing that stands out for John Paul II because like I said he was just always like there <laughs> through most of my life mm -hmm. I feel like and so it, it's just the, the almost like a constant presence of this energetic and you know so holy and so full of joy um, and cur and courage mm -hmm. and just a just a great model. Like I said, somebody uh, a few years ago, a friend of mine said something uh, not so charitable about John Paul II, and I actually told him, I said, "You better stop because it feels like you're slapping my grandfather." <laughs> so good for um, you. Good for you. <laughs> so there's no one thing. The it's just this constant presence. Yeah, you know, what's interesting for me, and maybe this is self-revelatory, so those who are psychologists listening to this podcast will have a field day <laughs> with this, but um, the most endearing image I have of John Paul is when, in his latter years, as he grew older, he was afflicted with Parkinson's, and he traveled many times with smile and just yeah. wave his hand, not speak. And it was the dignity of old age that could be infirmed, but still of inestimable price. Yes. With the dignity, right? That, you know, it, it taught the world, at least it taught me, that, you know, sickness is not something to be ashamed of, Old age is not something to be ashamed of, but 
it, there's a, a power, a, a, almost a transcendence to it, that a world that wants to hide it and cover it and put makeup on it and make believe that you could dress at 80 how you dressed at 15 and all this crazy <laughs> stuff, in my humble opinion. Um, but no, and, and he accepted it gracefully, the limitation, for all the reasons you just said, being athletic and, I mean, having a pool installed, you remember the story, it's, it's cheaper to put the pool in, the Pope said, than to have another conclave and pay for another Pope, and hiking and, and, and kayaking and all this stuff, right? Mountain yeah. climbing in Poland. Yeah. But um, it's at the end of his life that he showed a dignity of human life that was very different. Yeah. And that really still touches me very, very profoundly. Right? Um, so anyway, and then, of course, he died in, in April of 2005. And the other image was the Santo Subito. Remember at the funeral? Santo Subito. The yes. Italian screaming, yes. saint, soon, saint, yes. soon. Right? It was amazing. It, 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 it called back the images uh, that you can imagine in your mind of Francis of Assisi, where the same thing happened <sighs> when he died. And he was, he was canonized two years later. Yeah, yeah. Right? So, anyway, so I think I've proved the premise it, it, just on, just on the, the sheer human level. It, it, this was a remarkable man. But then, on the ecclesial level, what this man accomplished is really extraordinary. And just to kind of just go through them real quick, and then I, I want to go into his early life, because I think that's a key to understanding how this man really entered into a life of profound holiness and can be a guidepost for, for us as we try to raise our children and grandchildren and our children in religious formation on, you know, proving the premise it's the little things that really matter sometimes, right? Yes. But let's consider, what are some of the things he did? Name me one, Steve. Um, the series of uh, homilies that he gave, 120 or so, that turned into the Theology of the Body? Correct, right? Which were a series of papal um, uh, elocutions, addresses, at the weekly audiences, 129 in total. You put them all together, and now it's become really a coherent theology of the body. And we've spoken about that before, yes. but it's so opportune to the modern world, right? Yes. And it is Catholicism at its best. It is the integration of faith and reason, right? It's, it's the understanding of the natural grammar of the human body and how it opens itself, right, to the gift of grace to reveal a love that is multifaceted, that fits together that completes the human person, husband and wife in marriage, right? And opens itself to procreation. It's just a beautiful, beautiful depiction, portrait of what love can do, what it is, what it calls us to. And it's all rooted in the body because the body is the vehicle through which we can love. So it's not tangential, right? It is who we are. We've talked about yes. that many, many times before, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. That's good. That's one. I have nine more. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about the catechism of the Catholic Church. Right. 
Yes. It's only the second universal catechism that we've had. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And it, it is brilliantly done. It covers basically the compendium of our faith. It um, is quite easy to read, but it's dense, like we said the last time. So you can't read it half awake because every sentence, every phrase is there purposely. But I think the catechism, besides being a compendium of the faith, can actually be a tremendous source of re reflection and meditation. Right? It's not just to impart knowledge, but it itself is formative. And as the chair of the subcommittee, you know, a lot of our catechetical resources right, that come to us cannot pass our review without being judged in conformity. And even in the new institute we want to create, the foundation is the catechism. So it was groundbreaking for the modern yeah. world. Yeah. Right? And he also revised the code of canon law. In 1983, oh. both in the East and the West. Okay. And that was 70, 80 years after it was first promulgated. And he updated it. And he codified it. And since then, there have been revisions. Like Pope Francis now, for example, has uh, re reissued Book 6, which is the penal code of the, of the church. Mm -hmm. But remember, the, the, the law of the church is there not simply to remind people of obligation, but also protect rights so that we can be a just community of faith. And that was a monumental task that John Paul saw accomplished. Yeah. What about his travels? What about his travels? <laughs> Non-stop, mm -hmm. it felt like. Yeah, I want his frequent flyer miles. I would definitely <laughs> take his frequent any day of the week. <laughs> take a guess. How many countries? Take a guess. Oh, gosh. Uh, I don't know. 40? I, I, it's a total guess. 129. <laughs> 129. 129. How many miles did he fly? Take a oh, guess. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Like five Jeopardy. million. This is John Paul Jeopardy. No, <laughs> no, five million. I have no idea. <laughs> no, six hundred and eighty thousand. Wow, wow. That's not traveling. That's not counting routes and travel and cars and all. Just flying miles. Just on his papal trips. Six hundred and eighty thousand miles. Goodness. Remarkable, and the firsts in his travels. The firsts. So, first. To visit the White House. Hmm. Jimmy Carter was president. First, to go to the United Kingdom as a reigning pope. Remember, since the split with Henry VIII. First, to visit the sovereign of the United Kingdom in her own kingdom because she is, right, the supreme governor of the Church of England. Right. First, right, reigning pope to go to Canterbury Cathedral. Huh. And to meet with the Archbishop of Canterbury there. First pope to visit Egypt, modern pope. Now, of course, not the first pope, the first modern pope to visit Egypt and to visit the Coptic patriarch there. First pope, right, to visit an Islamic mosque in Damascus, Syria, when he went to visit. Huh. Right? He is, which we're going to get to in a second, he is also the presider over the largest gathering of humanity in the history 
of, of the human race. When he went to Manila in World Youth Day, historians believe that is the single greatest, largest gathering of human beings ever recorded in history. Between five to seven million people My in Manila. Goodness. Wow. He was the first pope to visit the uh, um, Jerusalem and visit the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall. Do you remember? I, yes. Where he put I think the so. little prayer, right, and asked for, um, asked for forgiveness hmm. for the great evil that the Holocaust was and inflicted on millions of people. Right. I mean, you could go on and on and on. It's just remarkable. Remarkable that yeah. this man did in travels. And everywhere he went, he brought joy and jubilation. And, you know, he was criticized. Who is not criticized, right? He was criticized. Why are they going? They spend the money. And this, like he's going to Africa. Why would they have to spend this money? But you know what? This spiritual fruit justified that expenditure, whatever it was of money, a thousand times over. Yeah. To bring hope into the heart of the most impoverished. Do you remember when he went to visit Nicaragua? Oh, you were probably I kid. don't remember that. In 1983, John Paul went to Nicaragua. And this was the time of the liberation theology and this whole talk of a popular church. And the Sandinistas were in power, right? And... They wanted to use the liberation theology movement to, to foment revolution, right? In the name of Christ. And John Paul was totally opposed to that. And there was a, a Ernesto Cardinal was a priest and a minister of the Sandinista government. And when John Paul arrived in Managua, I will never forget it. He got off the plane and Ernesto, who is a priest in mm -hmm. government which itself is forbidden, right? Oh, wow, yeah. Knelt down to kiss John Paul's hand, and John Paul immediately pulled his hand back, and with one finger, like your mother or father would do, <laughs> said to him, okay, in Spanish, you must straighten out your position with the church. And walked away. Wow. For the entire world to see. I'll never forget it. I will never forget Now wow. that takes courage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, as Excellency, that's a good place for us to pause uh, so we can take a break. This is fascinating because the man that, you know, I, as I said, I, I loved and so many people uh, loved, I'm, I'm learning a lot about, um, a lot more about his life and just what a remarkable uh, person he was. Let's, um, let's take a break and uh, we'll be right back to talk more about the great St. Uh, Pope John Paul II. Uh, when we come back, this is Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. Be right back. If you're concerned about your end-of-life plans, searching for a Catholic cemetery, or have loved ones who are buried in one of the 14 Catholic cemeteries throughout Fairfield County, now might be a good time to begin planning for yourself or for other family members. Call one of our family advisors at 203 742 
1450 and select option 5 to leave a message or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. Many people don't realize that they can be buried with their deceased loved ones even if all of the family's in-ground plots have been taken. The Diocese of Bridgeport Catholic Cemeteries provides in-ground burials as well as columbarium and mausoleum options. This makes it possible to unite your family together in the same cemetery, and it's an opportunity to build a bridge for your family back to the church. Talking about this issue is not easy, but pre-need planning makes your wishes clear, reduces cost, and helps your family avoid difficult decisions at a time of grief and loss. You can start your planning now by contacting one of our family advisors at 203-742-1450 and select option 5, or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. We can guide you through the options, regulations, and considerations to help you make the best decisions for your family. The number is 203-742-1450 and select option 5 or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. Welcome back to Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano. We're talking about the great Pope St. John Paul II and a man who was just a giant in history. And uh, Excellency, you you were going through some of the things that just stand out as uh, remarkable in a long you know, life of remarkable things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the accomplishments, we could keep going. And I think we need to leave some time to kind of look at his early life because it's, it's, it's so poignant and... and and helped formed him by the steel of suffering. It's just quite remarkable. But, I mean, he's the father of World Youth Day. Yes. Right? <laughs> yes, yeah. And think of all those. I, 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 I've told the story, Madison Square Garden. I still, I'm just, I, I think back on that experience, and I, I have no words to really describe the electricity in the room. And these are young people. I don't know how many people sit in a seat in Madison Square Garden, 20,000, 20, I have no idea. It was filled. Yeah. But it was electric. I've never experienced anything like that in my life. Right? Yeah. Yep. And all the gatherings of World Youth Day and the brilliance of it. Again, people say that's grandstanding, that's this, he was had a theatrical background and it's showmanship and all of that is nonsense. Because anybody who works with young people and John Paul did as a priest, as a young priest, knows that those who are faithful are tempted by the evil one to believe that their efforts are not worth it because they're the only ones doing it. And everywhere they turn, there are many young people who are doing something else. And when you go to World Youth Day and you sit with a million, two million young people from all over the world, right? the lie of the evil one is exposed. That they are not the only ones, but they are in very good company. And I cannot tell you from my own experience of being to a number of them, how encouraged young people are, particularly young adults, how they are when they realize they are part of a large and growing vibrant, authentic, and faithful community that transcends language, culture, and continent, race, and anything else, right? Faithful to Christ. John Paul knew that because growing up in a communist country, it was the community 
that sustain them in a country that would want to divide and conquer people. Right? Exactly. And they're still brilliant in their in their purpose and mission even to this day in World Youth Day. Right? What about Divine Mercy? And Saint Faustina. Right? Yes. John Paul died. John Paul died on the weekend of Divine Mercy. Right? And and it's funny that it's John Paul that lifted up Faustina to such great prominence as this this voice of God's mercy for a broken and sinful world. And it is his successor, Pope Francis, who is now challenging us to live it in the rough and tumble of life. Right? And that's where it gets complicated and messy, but we have no choice. Because he is not saying, Francis is not saying something new. He is building on what John Paul did. Right? Yes. So, that again, so you see the the manifestation, the outpouring, you see the the uh, the unfolding of grace at work, and you see that these men who have been asked to be the successor of Peter, that they fit into a, a narrative of the unfolding of God's will and God's direction for us as the people, right, redeemed in Christ. It's, it's, it's remarkable to me. It's just, and and I, I, I don't understand how people don't see this. I, maybe it's me, but <laughs> it's so evident. <laughs> yeah. Right? And then, and then, there was the year 2000. And John Paul's profound push building on Paul VI, his profound push for the new evangelization. Yes. Which all these years we have still been trying to determine and struggle how best we can bring that vision to fruition. Okay? Not a new message, not a new gospel, but new ways, new methodologies, new ways of expressing it with new technologies to reach people who are far away, to give them the charisma, the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. That has marked almost everything in our diocese we are doing. This is the influence of Paul VI and John Paul to our own day through Benedict and Francis. Yeah. I can't imagine being a diocesan bishop and not have that a centerpiece of my ministry. And, it, and John Paul is the spokesman for it, right? Yes, yes. And then just to bring this to a conclusion, and he wrote <coughs> 14 encyclicals in his spare time. <laughs> I'm not sure when he had spare time. <laughs> Yeah. And, and how many languages did the man speak? I have no idea. Eight, ten, twelve? <laughs> right, remarkable. It's just amazing. The, yeah, right, because the, the energy, the outward face, what he did for the church and the people and the travel, but then also, as you just pointed out, I mean, he was really, I mean, would you consider him, Excellency, one of the intellectual giants of at least the 20th century, if not, you know, Maybe for the church, in in general history. Well, well, I think I think history will judge that. I think yeah. without a doubt that he was an intellectual giant goes without saying. As to where he will be in history, only history will determine that. But quite frankly, history's judgment is not as important as God's. 
Yeah, <laughs> so, right, right, true. I would think that he has had an indelible effect on the life of the modern church, the contemporary church, is what is indisputable. Yes. Is indisputable. Okay. But now let's talk about his early years. And some of this, to be honest, I did not know until I prepared for this. And it, it really, for me, was, of all the times we've been together, Steve, this was the preparation, the reading, the researching was, um, was more of a spiritual retreat for me than, than perhaps many other topics we've talked about. Wow. Because okay. I glimpsed the man in a different way. Right? So he was, of course, born. Um, he was of a family. His mother was of Lithuanian extraction. His father was Polish. And he was the youngest of three children. And one of the things that I did not realize is that by the time he was 20, he was alone in the world. Right. Because his mother died when, she when he was eight of a heart attack. Earlier than his mother's death, his elder sister died from a... Right? Mm -hmm. And his brother, Edmund, with whom he was very close and was a physician, died from scarlet fever. And that really was a profound suffering. So you imagine you lost a sister and a brother and a mother, and you're only a teenager. Yeah. Again, we're talking about pre-World War II. And we're talking at a time when Wojtyla was um, confirmed at 18 years of age. Right? And he lived in a time and in a place where there was a large Jewish community that was maligned, persecuted. So even as a young man, the sufferings of his own life began to sensitize him to the sufferings of those around him and how he needed to stand up and be one with those people who suffered. To stand with them literally, not just figuratively, literally. And so one of the things I stumbled upon was this beautiful story about, you know, of course he was an athlete and he loved to... Um, to play soccer and whatever else. And oftentimes, uh, the future Pope, um, Carol would choose to play on the team that was all Jewish. Huh. Right? Because he did not see that as anything that should disting distinguish his friends because they did not share his Catholic faith. And he had a profound love and respect for Jewish people and the Jewish faith. He was the one who spoke of the Jews as our elder brothers in faith. Okay. So that alone, I'm sure, caused him consternation as a young boy, and yet he did it. It's a prophetic sign. Mm -hmm. So um, Wojtyla went to school went, moved to Krakow, went to university, and he was required to do service 
right, because of the preparations for World War II. But he refused to fire a weapon. He refused to, to use a gun. Again, to his credit. To his credit for a pope who would eventually speak about an encyclical of the gospel of life. Mm-hmm. And who would stand unequivocally against every sin against the dignity of life, not just abortion, euthanasia, but also against capital punishment. Right? He refused to shoot a gun. And then his father died, right? His father died in 1941 from a heart attack. And so by 20, he was alone. And so what did he do? He didn't turn in on himself, but he used that profound suffering to reach out and to create communities of faith, right? So as I mentioned, he had a theatrical background, meaning he was trained in theater. He, he was a poet, he wrote poetry, he wrote short stories, as well as great philosophical works. And so when he was forced to work, right? Again, this was even after the Nazis invaded Poland, He worked as a messenger, he worked in a restaurant, he worked as a laborer, he worked in a chemical factory, and he hid from the Nazis to avoid deportation to Germany, where then he would be conscripted to fight in their armies. And they tell the story of him being hid in the basement of his uncle's house while the Nazis were searching the upstairs of the house. No one thought to go into the basement. And if that was not enough, it was during this time he was introduced to the Carmelite spirituality, which you could see in John Paul's writings, this mystical vision of spirituality, this great union with God, right, and the entree being suffering. So, he had physical ailments, too. He had an accident, he had a fractured skull after being hit by a tram. He had an accident where he left one shoulder lower than the other. Even in the Nazis, he was hit by a Nazi truck. Wow. Okay, (laughs) and had a severe concussion. And the Nazi officials took him and brought him to hospital to help him to recover. Of course, those Nazis had no idea they were helping a future pope. (laughs) (laughs) Right? So, I mean, all of this gave him a great question what 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 is what is my life worth living for all, right, all of this suffering what am i to do with it and that's where i believe the vocation to priesthood was born and in his typical style he knocked on the door of the archbishop's house and said I think I want to be a priest. <laughs> Imagine. <laughs> and he was, he was admitted into the underground seminary because they weren't, they weren't allowed. They were forbidden. And eventually, when the Nazis were expelled out of Poland and the seminary was left abandoned, he and a classmate was given the task of cleaning the toilets of all the frozen excrement that was left in them before they evacuated the seminary. (laughs) 
What allows a man to do that? A man who has looked at suffering and is not daunted or not fearful. That's what. There's nothing you will not do for the one who loves you, who is the Lord Jesus. Mm -hmm. I, I, I could go on and on and on, but you see the remarkable path this man had. Yeah. As you're, as you're telling this, Excellency, I mean, it's so... One of the quotes that I carry around with me from John Paul II um, just is so... It's blazing in, in my mind right now because you're describing his suffering as a child. You're describing him growing up uh, in the time of the Nazis and the Soviets and the suffering at the end of his life and all throughout. And just... Um, he has this, this quote where he said... Do not be afraid. I plead with you. Never, ever give up on hope. Never doubt. Never tire. And never become discouraged. Be not afraid. I mean, that that's not just something that he said. As you're describing, it's he not lived theory. that. Yeah. Absolutely. And remember, what's hope? We've talked about this. Yes. Hope is not this vague idea things are going to get better. Hope is is the reasonable expectation in faith right, that we will get the desire of our heart, which is to get to heaven. Okay? And therefore, when you enter into suffering, every, all the nonsense of life is stripped away. And it's, you get down to the breast tax. In the end, what's your stance? What are you going to do? How are you going to give your life? What ultimately means something to you? What is worth fighting for or dying for? And in the end, John Paul chose hope because he knew that his path was one day to come to heaven if he was faithful to Christ. And that allowed him to do everything we talked about. So for ourselves, how do we answer that question? How do we answer that question? For those of us who are in one way privileged and in another way disadvantaged, that we do not suffer in the same way. Yeah. Who or what is going to strip away the nonsense? See? Fascinating stuff. Fascinating stuff. We, we talked about before also uh, the influence that his father had, which you already said, but um, I, we, we spoke in a previous show about how John Paul, or, well, Carl Votiwa would wake up as a child in the middle of the night and see his father on his knees praying and the example that that set. And he, I think he described his, his life watching his father's devotion um, as his mm -hmm. first seminary. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Without a doubt. And therefore, there is a particular challenge to men and fathers in particular that John Paul gives because the religious formation of children is for both parents not one parent mm -hmm. and for those whose fathers or grandfathers or even by extension uncles who are involved with the family for those who have a true, authentic faith, 
they are far more influential, and this is the research from Kara, far more influential on the behavior of their children once they become adults, to become observant and than actually their mothers. So I forget what the statistic is, but if you have a, a, a father in a family who's observant in the faith, goes to Mass every Sunday, his children, I think, four times more likely when they're adults to be going to Mass on a regular basis. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Right? But there's two things also I learned. The first was, do you remember, you must remember this, when John Paul would visit a country for the first time, as he came down the steps of the plane, he would always kiss the ground. Yes, I do remember that. Yeah, and he would do it every way he went. It's interesting. The very first time he did that is when he arrived at the Church of the Assumption in Krakow. His huh. first pastoral assignment, right? He did that. He went and he kissed the ground as he arrived. And he's and he did it in all his assignments and he did it in all his visits. Right? And who used to do that? Do you know what saint used to do that? No, I don't. John Vianney. Oh. And that's where he got it from. Huh. I didn't know that actually. <laughs> so yeah. So when I was I was a kid, I remember seeing him do that on TV, and being a kid, I thought, oh, he's just glad he made it safely there. But there's something else, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, they may, depending on who was flying the plane, that may have been true. But, <laughs> but I think it was more to that. Yeah, um, what's the... It's, well, it is, I think, deep gratitude gratitude right it's it's it can be interpreted in many ways humility gratitude okay um an adoration of the lord you know because if you worship the lord we have the posture of kneeling or bowing but the ancient gesture is prostration hmm I mean, it could all be all of those things. But the fact that I always interpreted it as an act of tremendous gratitude to be given this opportunity to be able to, 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 to serve the Lord is, could be what tied all of those gestures, even from his first assignment, right? Yeah. I know it, it moved me tremendously as a young man to see that. Yeah. The other thing that's interesting is he speaks of um, in in some of his talks and in his and um, in some of the recollections of his closest associates like Cardinal Jeevish, who was the secretary, gosh, forever. I mean, mm -hmm. for years and years and years. Uh, he spoke of his little family, and the little family were the young people that he drew together as a young priest, and prayed with them and socialized with them and went skiing and hiking and mountaineering and all that stuff with them. And they used to call him uncle. Hmm. It's interesting. Particularly when, okay, in the, in the communist era of Poland, it was not permitted by law for a priest to gather students. Right. So they called him uncle. Huh. And that stuck. 
huh. that stuff. But you see, what's the insight there? One could say, well, yes, it's, you know, he's looking for support because he was alone, rightfully so. But the insight is that the church is a family. And it's not meant to be a surrogate family when your natural family is not there. It's meant to be a family in addition to your natural family. In other words, we are gifted with two families. And John Paul realized that profoundly when it was the only family he had left. <laughs> Should that not animate all of us? That a parish is not just a social club. It's not just a theoretical community of faith. It's our family. It's meant to be our family. Yeah. How could the world, how would the church, we talk about the church being inviting and welcoming and all this stuff, which it should be. But if it was a real family in each parish, think of all the time I could save not having to write all that stuff. <laughs> because it's basically what we'd be doing. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I just think he, it, John Paul proves the premise that the seeds that are planted in our lives as young people and young adults become the, the, the yield, the growth of our life. And it's not to say your childhood and adolescence and teenage years, therefore, set your life in stone, because they don't, but they can be powerful experiences in those times which then set you on the path to holiness, to greatness. Yeah. And we who are parents and spiritual parents need to remember that. Because John Paul could easily have been, if he had chosen differently, could have been a big wig in communist Poland. Because he was that gifted. Right. Right? Yep. Yeah, mm -hmm. I can hear, I can hear the energy in your voice, Excellency, as you as you talk about him, um, and it's just, uh, it's it's uh, invigorating. Um, it's to me, the the question that you asked me in the beginning of you know what was the enduring image, and I didn't know uh, forty five minutes ago, but now as I'm as I've been listening to you, I have this image of just. Um, love, which I'm just repeating what you said, really, but, you know, people loved him and he loved people and is evident in the World Youth Days, like you said, when he went to visit his would-be assassin in prison to forgive him, um, it, when he would speak off the cuff from, from the balcony. Um, it was just, it was just so, yeah. yeah. Right. But, 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 but this is the spiritual lesson okay i would presume none of us on this podcast are going to have the position he had but he was guided by grace to be able to lead the church in a time of tremendous societal upheaval the upheaval francis is helping us to manage now is different it's the solidification of the majority of our world being poor and the few being rich, which John Paul saw in his earlier life. But from our purposes, the takeaway is 
what do I do with the events of my life? And how do I allow them, all right, to put me on the path to holiness? Whatever, ultimately, the Lord is going to ask us to do. Raise a family, be the governor of New York, myself, be a diocesan bishop, whatever it is, to be a, a teacher. Or, what do I do with these events in my life that will lead me to greater holiness? That's the key, I yeah. think. That's yeah. the take of spiritual lesson of John Paul. He chose in grace to allow them to lead him to a life of remarkable holiness and leadership. But why can't we do the same in our own way? Amen. Something to think about. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's take one final break, Excellency, and then we'll come back with a listener question. This is uh, Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. We will be right back. Want to make a difference at work? Veritas Catholic Network is looking to hire a full-time development director. If you're organized and you have sales or fundraising experience, if you love the faith and feel called to evangelization, if you're looking for something more meaningful, email info at veritascatholic.com. We're hiring, and you can help take Veritas to the next level as we grow and continue to reach more and more souls with the incredible saving words of Jesus Christ. Email us about the development director position. It's info at veritascatholic.com. That is info at veritascatholic.com if you're interested in joining the Veritas team. Welcome back to Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano. Excellency, a timely question from a listener this week. Um, and here it is, short and sweet. Bishop Frank, is it okay to let my children participate in Halloween? Uh, that's a great question. And for full disclosure, I have a tremendous bias against Halloween. Um, but the bias is because the secular world has usurped it and made it into this sanitization and glorification of symbols that we as Christians always traditionally associated with what I'll call the dark side of life. And at its worst, things that are evil. But Halloween's origin is the eve of all hallows. And the ancient tradition was to dress up in the images of the saints in anticipation of celebrating the celestial feast of all the saints, known and unknown. So the answer to the question is this. I Yes, it is fine to have your children participate, but with the proper caution, and that is, I would recommend that no one dress their children in, in anything that sanitizes, regularizes, or makes quote-unquote normal what we traditionally have associated with evil. Yeah. Such as witches, goblins, vampires that are the living dead. I would not strongly recommend that you do not do that. But you could dress them in, you know, costumes like doctors and nurses and and um, saints, which would be tremendous. Yeah, yep. But, so yes, I think they can, because they should not be. We, we as Christians should not allow the secular world to win the battle of Halloween. Yeah. We have to take it back and re-Christianize it, and that's one of the ways you could do that. All right. Great advice. And if you have a question for Bishop Frank, you can send it in to us on social media or you can email questions at veritascatholic.com. 
Bishop Frank Caggiano is on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So is Veritas Catholic Network. Uh, we would like to thank Foundations in Faith. A grant from the St. Therese Fund for Evangelization makes it possible for us to bring Let Me Be Frank to you. Foundations in Faith is committed to supporting and transforming pastoral ministries in the Diocese of Bridgeport, and you can learn more about their outstanding work at foundationsinfaith.org. Excellency, thank you so much for a great show. Um, before you go, would you please give us your blessing? In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, through the intercession of Pope St. John Paul II, we ask that you give us a courageous and brave heart. Give us tongues that always speak the truth. Give us a joyful presence in the world that we may bring the world and our sisters and brothers to greater faith in the Lord Jesus. Bless us, bless those whom we love. For we ask this as we ask all things in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you, my friend. Thanks, See you next excellency. week. Great. All the best. Okay, bye.